Hello, this is Dr. Paul Sachs, Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. John Bartlett, Professor of Medicine from Johns Hopkins and a long-standing pioneer in the treatment and research of HIV and AIDS, among other things. John, welcome. I'd like us to focus our conversation on the early days of the HIV epidemic, specifically your impressions, your roles, and what was it like back then? Well, I started at Hopkins in 1980, and I was actually recruited to study Clostridium difficile. But in Baltimore, AIDS became a big epidemic due primarily to heroin addiction, which was rampant in the city and still is. And there were an awful lot of patients that had HIV infection, and no one was responding in terms of a medical care program. There weren't any drugs, but there nevertheless was the need for care, and that sort of became a deviation of my career plans, uh, and we started the aid service in 1983, and we actually started it because of Frank Polk. He had been a colleague in Boston uh, when I was there, and then he was recruited to Hopkins, and he was an, a world expert in the infectious disease complications of pregnancy, and he came to me in 1983, and I was his division chief, he said, I'm going to change my career. I'm going to study this new infection called AIDS. And as his uh, division chief, I uh, suggested that he think otherwise. And I remember he said, this is going to be a really big one. And then he said, there will be two seminal discoveries. One is someone's going to find the virus that causes it, and that's not me, because I don't know anything about virology. And the other is studies of epidemiology, which will define the risks, uh, the natural history, all of the facets of this disease, and that's what I know, and that's what I'm going to do. Uh, so he changed his career, built a, a large cohort of patients at Hopkins, and I, of course, had to respond by having a place for them to get medical care as well as participating in his cohort natural history study. Uh, we started in the basement of the hospital so that no one would notice because of the um, extraordinary stigma of AIDS at that time, and we saw the patients in the Moore Clinic and built up an AIDS service. John, was, was Hopkins supportive of this effort? Well, I think at the beginning, we shielded their knowledge of what we were doing, and we got away with it. Actually, the chief of medicine uh, was Victor McCusick, and he had a clinic right next to ours uh, in the basement of the hospital. And he really was not at all bothered uh, by our having an aid service. I was mostly worried about the administration because of the stigma associated with the disease and the morbid fear of contagion. And then I got a big surprise in 1986. The president of the hospital, Dr. Bob Heisel, called me to his office and he said, uh, Bartlett, there's this virus going around. <laughs> and I said... Yeah, I heard about this virus, and he said, well, we really need to do something about it. And I said, well, we already are. Uh, we have a clinic. It's in the basement. We hid it from you. And he said, uh, well, I think you really need a program 
with an inpatient unit, and I want you to bring me a plan and a budget for that unit. I was, of course, very pleased and also surprised. I told him at the time that this was going to bring a lot of problems that he needed to be aware of uh, in terms of the stigma, the community impression, and so forth. And he, I'll never forget what he said. He said, John, uh, this is a moral mandate. Do it. So we made the plan. He said, your plan is a good one, but your budget is shy. Double it and come back. Now, Paul, where in medicine did did anybody ever say something like that to you? (laughs) I was was just shocked. Um, And it was a 27-bed ward. It was recently embraced by incorporated into the rest of the hospital because all of those connotations were um, eliminated by the contemporary medicine. It's wonderful to hear the support you had from your colleagues and administration. However, was your response different from what other ID doctors did and, or other non-ID doctors? In terms of the rest of the medical community in Baltimore, by and large, there were some private practitioners that uh, took care of HIV-infected patients, but not very many. Uh, we were pretty much the only show in town. University of Maryland decided they would be the teachers of HIV infection, but would not take care of the patients. Now, they have a big international aid service as well as a Baltimore service. How about the ID establishment, sort of the people who run the big meetings? Were they interested in HIV or did they have mixed feelings? Well, I think, yeah, I think most of ID, at at least at the beginning, felt that this was a subspecialty within the specialty, and therefore there would be part of a meeting or part of an issue of a journal or something. I think it had trouble being embraced by infectious disease, in part because it was unique. Uh, Don't forget, infectious disease, especially infectious disease consultations in clinics, are largely devoted to patients who have something for which there is a drug uh, that will lead to cure. Longitudinal care was really very unusual in ID clinics before the coming of AIDS. You saw a person had pulmonary infection and you took care of them, but you didn't see them month after month. So many people in infectious disease just weren't up to it. Some others felt that since you couldn't do anything about it, they didn't want to get into it. And of course, there was the usual stigma of HIV infection that riveted through medicine, and that was it was an ugly disease, a potentially contagious disease, and they didn't necessarily like the patients that got it, since it was largely associated with gay men at a time that that was not socially acceptable uh, in the minds of many and was also a a disease of injection drug users. So it had a lot of marks against it at the beginning in terms of being embraced by the ID community. How did the non-medical public respond to what you were doing? And I'm thinking about your friends, your family, and people who met you outside of the hospital. Well, my family was always very supportive. Uh, That was never a problem uh, at home. My friends didn't care. 
the society itself at the beginning was rough um, for the reasons that I mentioned. It was the connotation of who had AIDS. But I think more than that was the morbid fear of contagion. And I can remember seeing a dietitian at Hopkins trying to get a, a meal tray under the crack on the bottom of the door. It wasn't that she hated the person on the other side of the door. She was just afraid of contagion. I remember a patient telling me that when they registered, the registrar gave him a pen to sign admission, and he signed it, and then he put the pen down, and she picked it up with a tissue and threw it across the room into a waste paper basket. Do you know how demeaning that is, how awful that is? Uh, but nevertheless, that was the cloud over the disease at the beginning. Remember that Ryan White, that very famous child with hemophilia, was kicked out of school because the perception was everybody in the school was going to get AIDS because they had a kid with hemophilia and HIV infection. Uh, so, yeah, the climate at that time was very different. Of course, all of that is almost gone now, not completely. Interesting. I, I still sense it sometimes in some of my long-term survivors, an almost internal sense of stigma, and they seem to be much more stigmatized by it than the people who are recently diagnosed. I think that's right. And it was obviously, in addition to being challenging, also at times very rewarding doing this work back then. What in particular did you find rewarding about it? Uh, one is that, I mean, what are we in this business for? We're here to provide comfort and care to patients who need it, and nobody needed it more than these patients at that time. You asked what was good about it. Uh, I think what stands out to me was the sense of doing something that was needed and the gathering of the group around us that became part of that team. We had that AIDS ward at Hopkins. The restaurants provided food for celebrations. One restaurant gave us scones every morning for the patients for breakfast. The patients didn't know what scones were, and the, and the help always ate the scones. But nevertheless, uh, we had uh, fundraisers uh, that were well-attended, well-supported. Uh, there was always that sense of community engagement uh, by some, not by all, but by some who felt the empathy that was needed for that patient population. More than that was the spree de corps within the group. You know, you take a disaster, and this was a disaster before 1996, that afflicts a large number of, of patients. Uh, where they're rejected by society and they die a, a slow, morbid death. We call it the three Ds, diarrhea, dementia, and disgrace were what these patients suffered. And there was great empathy by some people for uh, that patient population. The care providers were extraordinary at Hopkins. The nurses were the magic. They won all kinds of awards. They knew those patients like the back of their hand. Uh, they were the major care providers. We made rounds and medical decisions and whatnot, but they were the chemistry that really made it go. 
The chemistry and the division around this issue was really extraordinary in the sense that everybody came together. We had Bo Diddley come and give a concert. We danced all night, the group. We had parties. We had a softball league. We were called the AIDS Busters. Uh, we won the league, uh, beat the maintenance men, uh, which was really a tough game. But we went out at Wednesday afternoon and played softball. The chemistry in the division, it was dietitians, it was nurses, it was doctors, it was students. Everybody sort of sensed the esprit de corps because we were doing something that was with a very common goal to try to get these patients through. Uh, we had Mother Teresa came to Baltimore to donate a hospice for AIDS patients, and it's still there. You know, when you say, how did you survive with all of this scourge from the outside? Yeah, but there were some wonderful facets of that. Well, John, you really describe well what was rewarding about caring for people with HIV back then. And one thing that really resonates with me is just how appreciative the patients were even before we had effective therapy. It's something I try to explain to medical students as they're choosing their careers, because to choose something for which there's no effective therapy isn't necessarily a, a, a bad idea, because then you can get to experience the progress. So now let me ask you about the progress. Do you remember when you first realized that HIV was going to be treatable, and how did that influence both uh, your experience and also the experience of your, your team? Well, I think the, the big challenge was to uh, try to get effective therapy, and I think the first big strike was the ACT trial. It was not stunning at all uh, in the sense that the sample size was small, but the difference was great in terms of the impact on mortality. Uh, but the drug was bad, and the head of the scientific review committee said, I would not approve this drug uh, ever. This is poison. And that's what he wrote in his report. But the head of the FDA is the one that pushed it through. You know, the unusual thing about it was that the head of the FDA antiviral section worked in the Whitman Walker Clinic in Washington and saw the patients with the disease. And he came out with a statement, or screaming actually, we need drugs. And he got it through with a record low number of patients, 252 patients in that ACT trial. I think that was the first glimmer of hope, but it was a noisy one. And then the big, uh, the Eureka episode was the 1996 conference in Vancouver when Trip Gulick presented the 035 Merck study of Crixivan. And that, that was stunning. What he showed was one year, 80% of the patients that got triple therapy had no detectable virus versus zero in the control groups. This may be an over-dramatization, but we went into the conference knowing every patient in the Moore Clinic uh, was going to die. And we came out knowing that if they made it to 1996, they would survive. And our mortality rate in our clinic went down 80% in the first year after that. So I think we became uh, well aware of where this disease was going in 1996. John, it's it's a disease that has disproportionately targeted 
the poor and the minority populations in the United States. And yet we have this remarkable network of providers and the system in place to pay for it. How did that come about? And what can we learn from this with other diseases? So I think uh, in Baltimore, 90% of the patients that had HIV infection uh, live below the poverty line. I think nationally, it's like 80% are below the poverty line. So it's a disease of people that are relatively poor and certainly can't afford expensive medical care. And they created a system, uh, Ryan White Care Act, uh, under the DHHS, uh, in order to provide the medical care services to patients with HIV infection. Uh, and they provide the drugs and support for a lot of the social work services and the nursing care and a lot of other special uh, amenities, primarily for those below the poverty line, but also for others with HIV infection. That act has been a godsend, uh, and I don't know what we would have done without it. That was a government response which was extraordinary, needed, and turned out to land on its feet in terms of what it's been able to do, and thank goodness for it. Any heroes you want to mention? And feel free also to mention some not-so-heroes if you're so inclined. Well, you know, Tony Fauci had an interesting experience with this. You know, he was really an expert in Wagoner's disease and some other rheumatologic diseases and read the MMWR, not the first one in June 1981, but the one in July, the second report, and he got goose pimples. He called them goose pimples. I always called them goose bumps. He said that he never had them before and he never had them since, but he's heard other people talk about them. At any rate, When he read that, he changed his career, and then he has subsequently spearheaded, of course, much of the biomedical research related to HIV and care and research in the United States and in the world. Uh, So he is clearly a hero. Another one that comes to mind is Everett Koop, who was the Surgeon General under Ronald Reagan. You know, if you ask somebody who's the Surgeon General, I bet not 1% of people in the United States knew who the last Surgeon General was. But if they answer the question, they either say, I don't know, or it's Everett Koop. He made a mark uh, that shows what a Surgeon General can do. He took on AIDS with a vengeance and sent a letter to every American family in the United States. I asked him what was the hardest part of sending the letter And he said the hardest part was licking the stamps, (laughs) which I think was a great response. But what he what he said in the in the letter was every family has to be aware of AIDS. They have to teach their kids about condoms. And you know you didn't talk about condoms at that time. He was very straightforward, and he did a lot of other things that were good in medicine as well. He was a pediatric surgeon, and he pled pediatric health care causes very well. Another hero is Bill Clinton, who called attention to the problem of the disease as a threat to global security. So he called attention to it in the State of the Union speech, I think it was 1980. He didn't do anything about it, but when he retired, he set up the Clinton Foundation. And I don't think very many people know this, but he's really been the kingpin for decreasing the cost of AIDS drugs in the world by about 90%. 
In other words, what costs $10,000 here is like $100 in the rest of the world. Another person is Bush. Bush called Tony Fauci, uh, and then he said, bring me a big plan. Think big. Uh, He brought him a plan, and that was the origin of the PEPFAR program, uh, which is probably the greatest medical accomplishment of contemporary medicine in terms of what it has done for a disease that was set to devastate the world in most of developing countries. The work is not done. But boy, it's well on its way. Um, And then, of course, there were a bunch of uh, doctors that got in early. I mean, I've talked about Hopkins, but San Francisco really jumped early and jumped fast. Our service was always voted number two in the AIDS category for U.S. News and World Report. San Francisco was always number one, and they were out there ahead of the curve and still doing wonderful things. And then Magic Johnson, he was the greatest guard in NBA history. I think that's a unanimous opinion. And in 1991, he had a health insurance exam, was told he had AIDS, uh, and he announced to the world, I have AIDS. And he had to drop out of professional basketball because some of the players, according to an ugly write-up in the New York Times that said that some of the players in the NBA didn't want to be on the court with him because they were afraid they'd get AIDS. Oh, another one is Martin Delaney, who was part of the ACT UP group. Act up, you know, acted up and it made us all angry. They closed the Golden Gate Bridge. They laid down on the ground. They trashed uh, all the exhibits at AIDS conferences. I mean, they were really tough. And they were mad because they did not think that there was adequate attention to AIDS as a disease in terms of making progress. And Martin Delaney was probably the most memorable because he had the biggest impact. And he spoke on behalf of the activist community. I'm I'm reluctant to say who the goats are. There were an awful lot of people that had great bias against patients with HIV infection and some bad commentaries about AIDS, especially in the early days. I don't see that anymore. I think the stigma is largely gone, not entirely gone. And you mentioned it, Paul. Yeah, that's a really great list of of heroes. And the one thing I wanted to mention is sort of related to the ACT UP activities where they were complaining that not enough resources were being given to the disease. But sometimes you hear people saying that HIV and AIDS has received a disproportionate amount of funding, both for research and for care. And I was wondering how you respond to these comments. I think the initial effort with science and application of resources for care of patients was very rewarding and now in retrospect justified. Much of what we needed to do has been done. We have not crossed the goal line in getting either a vaccine or a cure. And we're not going to be happy with the state of HIV infection until we have that. So I think the interest is in that facet of the disease. What's debated, of course, is the amount of resources that are allocated when you have to rob Peter to pay Paul. Well, John, this has been a really wonderful discussion. And many times while you were talking, I was on my end of the line, smiling or laughing, but covering my microphone so that it wouldn't interrupt the flow. (laughs) And I just... I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you for the interview. Okay. Take care, John. Bye-bye.